If you would now take a copy of God's Word and turn to John's Gospel, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I will read the entire chapter for us today, but we are going to focus our exposition and consideration to verses 6 through 26 today. A brief outline of the chapter. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It is uh, at the end of a series of lessons that he's been teaching the disciples on the night before the cross. The prayer is uh, outlined in, in three sections. Verses 1 through 5 um, is Jesus' prayer for himself. And actually, we looked at that a little over a week ago on Monday, Thursday. Today, we're going to pick up in verse 6. And verses 6 through 18 is Jesus' prayer for his immediate disciples. Then in verse 19 through 26, we see Jesus' prayer for the church universal. And it goes without saying that any time a preacher comes and touches John 17, uh, that they can't cover everything in, in one sermon. Um, the best I see it, it to do it proper, do it probably would take, there's 26 verses, 26 sermons at minimum to do any justice to John 17. And here we're going to look at it in just two. So forgive me for not covering everything. Um, we'll do our best to make our way uh, through it and it will be uh, with God's help and blessing profitable for our souls. So before I read it, uh, let's do ask the Lord for his help this morning. Our great God and Heavenly Father, this is your word. It has come to us in the person of your Son. It has been preserved for us that we might know him and know you. And that we might grow in his grace, bringing him glory. I ask that as we hear John chapter 17 read. May by your spirit working in us, may we have some sense of the, the awe that those disciples must have felt and experienced as they heard Jesus pray on that evening. May it be pressed upon our hearts and minds. May it leave us unchanged. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with, the, with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I have come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, 
Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. So, the Sunday after Easter, why are we going back to Thursday night? This is Monday, Thursday. Monday, Thursday. This is the the end of the upper room discourse. Why go back? Well, this high priestly prayer from our Savior is the conclusion of a series of teachings that has been come to know the upper room discourse. This is his time with his disciples before the cross the next day. The discourse goes from chapter 13 to chapter 17 in John's gospel. Now, that's roughly a quarter of the whole gospel. John has devoted a quarter of his gospel to what was most likely equivalent of five hours of ministry of Jesus on earth. And John has devoted this much time to what happens in the upper room because here this is Jesus' final words. It's his parting words. And last words and final words of someone knowing that they are departing are important. But it's not only that they're just the last things he wants to share with them, it's what the disciples need to hear. Because he will lead them. He will go to the cross. They will see him risen. He will ascend and depart from them. He will enter glory after securing their salvation. They will join him in glory but there's going to be a period between their last seeing Jesus ascend on the clouds and then they're seeing their Savior face to face again. When they do, they'll see him in his full glory 
like they've never seen him before. So Jesus is preparing his disciples for the period for while they are waiting for glory. He's giving them instructions for how they are to go about serving him after he ascends to heaven. Have you ever thought and ever asked your question, uh, ask yourself the question, what is Jesus doing right now? Like right now at this moment, this very moment, this second. And then what is he doing later today? What is he doing tonight? What is Jesus doing? You know, when you're away from someone, uh, that thought comes up. When um, I'm away from my kids uh, on occasion and we FaceTime, uh, they want to know, like, what is happening right now, right where you are, Dad. Like, like show me the conference room. Show me the, the hotel. Who, who are you with? They want to know exactly what's happening. Have you ever thought that about our Savior? What is he doing right now? Now, many of you, you have your, your, your Sunday school answer ready. He's praying for us, and that's the right answer. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, he is praying on the behalf of believers. If you are, belong to Jesus Christ, he is praying for you at this very moment and every moment. That is what he's doing. Well, you ever thought, what does that prayer sound like? What would it be like to, to, to have the heavens opened and to hear Jesus praying for you right now? Well, we know that it will sound like what is revealed in God's word. And I bring us to John chapter 17 again this morning because here, this is a, a special occasion in redemptive history, but I think it also gives us a glimpse into Jesus' ongoing ministry of intercession. What does his prayers for his church sound like 24-7, 365, until all the church is gathered home in glory, until he returns on the clouds in glory? I think here we, we get a glimpse of what Jesus' prayer sounds like. So I want us to look at the two prayers here. The prayers for his immediate disciples and the prayers for the church universal that's to come through their ministry. In verses 6 through 19, I want us to consider how Jesus prays for the preservation of his disciples' faith and mission. And then in verses 20 through 26, I want us to consider how Jesus prays for the communion of the saints now and forever. Now and forever. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying for the preservation of his disciples. He's praying for the preservation of their faith and their mission. Jesus prays for the keeping of his disciples. That's where I'm taking the word preservation. He's Holy Father in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. And here, what does it mean to keep? Well, in the context, we see that it means to preserve them distinct from the world. Because who are these disciples? Well, in verse 6, these disciples are, Jesus identifies them as the people whom you gave me, the you being the Father, gave me out of the world. These are the disciples who've been taken out of the world. 
They're still in the world, but they're distinct from the world. And Jesus is praying that they would be preserved in that distinction from the world. What do we mean by world? Well, we mean the world of fallen humanity that is in rebellion against God. We mean the world that is without the saving knowledge of the gospel. And what has made these disciples distinct from the world? What is that the Father has given them to the Son, but then having been given these disciples, the Son has shared the Father with them. All that the Father gave the Son, Jesus says, he shared with these disciples. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people that you've given me out of the world. Verse 8, I've given them the words that you gave me. He taught them the truth about God. He has revealed to them God's character and will. And so he's praying, keep them in the name that I have shown them, the name that I have revealed to them, Heavenly Father. Now, name in the ancient world isn't quite the same as name today. It wasn't just merely a legal identifier. But you can see throughout Scripture that name referred to the character of a person, who they are, what they were like. So Jesus, in his words, in his teaching, in his works, in his miracles, in his service, in every moment he spent on the earth, he was revealing the person of the Father and revealing it to the disciples that the Father had given him. He was giving them the Father's name. John, in the beginning of his gospel, in the prologue, in verse 18, John chapter 1, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Made Him known is coming from the Greek term to where we also get the word exegesis. Exegesis, when we exegete a passage, we draw out what is there in the passage. What is the message? What does the grammar teach us? Well, here it's saying that Jesus is the exegete of the Father. To know what the Father is like is to look at the Son. In Exodus chapter 3, God appeared to Moses. He appeared to him in a burning bush. And he sanctified Moses. He called him out of the world. And he sends him on, on a mission to be the deliverer of God's people in slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, if I'm going to go on this mission, you got to tell me who's sending me. And what did God tell Moses when Moses asked for his name? He says, I am who I am. God was revealing his perfections to Moses. He's saying, I am the self-existent, independent one. I am the creator and sustainer of all things. I'm unchangeable, always reliable. I'm eternal in my existence. I'm transcendent. I am holy. God revealed his name to Moses, gave it to him, and then sent him out. But that revelation came through uh, the theophany of a burning bush. But in Jesus, the one who is truth incarnate, the perfections of God's character is revealed to disciples in flesh and blood. In Jesus, the great I am who I am 
entered this fallen world, taking to himself a nature like ours, and showed the disciples what the Father was like. John 14, 9, in the upper room, Jesus said, whoever has seen me, he has seen the Father. So he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. He's praying, preserve them from abandoning what has been revealed to them about the one true God. Preserve them from going back to the darkness of the world that they would stay in the saving knowledge that comes from knowing the persons of the Godhead. But it's not just that he prays as their high priest here interceding for his people. We see that Christ, as he is praying for their keeping and their preservation, he, he also is praying with that crown for the office of king. He intercedes as a king for his people, seeking their protection. In verse 15, we see this. See, it's a king's duty to protect his people and to oppose the enemies of his people. And this is on Jesus' mind. He recognizes that if they're going to be kept in the world, that they must reckon with the enemy of their soul. Satan will, will seek to pull the disciples back into thinking and living like the world again. So what does Jesus say in verse 15? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Knowing the great enemy of our soul, we would tend to say, Lord, take us out of here as quick as possible. That he is too great of a foe for us, and he is for us, but not for our king. Satan's strategy is to deceive, it is to tempt, and it is to accuse God's people. But King Jesus will come and through his cross conquer Satan's power to deceive, tempt, and accuse the people of God. He will free them from Satan's dominion and yet Satan will still attack. All the disciples will fail Jesus. The next day, they will fail him. They'll be scattered. They will run, but they'll all be recovered. In the end, they'll all be kept. And those who flee when Christ is being crucified, 10 of those will become martyrs and they will give their lives bravely and courageously for their Savior. They will be kept from Satan in the end. There's only one, John, who we believe lived to, to die of old age. The king doesn't lose his people. Think how much Peter needed to hear this prayer. Earlier in the upper room in John 13, Jesus told Peter that you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tomorrow. In Luke's gospel, we get more of the conversation between Jesus and Peter. In Luke 22, 31-34, Jesus told Peter, Satan demanded to have you. That carries the, the, the weight of Satan's hatred of God's people. He demanded to have you. Why? That he might sift you like wheat. But, what did Jesus say? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
Peter needed to hear Jesus' prayer. Satan was coming saying, I'm going to show everyone that Peter is not wheat. He's chaff. Put him in the trial. Let me touch him. Let me go after him. He will deny you. And Peter does. But through that, he's recovered. He's renewed. Jesus doesn't lose any that the Father has given him. And what Satan meant for Peter's destruction, his high priest and king uses for his rescue and refining, demonstrating that he is among those given to the Son by the Father. Jesus doesn't lose any that the Father has given him. Now some may say, but what about, there's only 11 in the room at this point. One of the 12 has left, and Jesus knew that. And at the second half of verse 13, he addresses Judas. And he makes it clear that Judas was not lost because Jesus failed. Jesus did not keep him because of God's design. It was in fulfillment of Scripture. Scripture passages like Psalm 41.9, Psalm 69.25, Psalm 109.8 spoke of the betrayer. And here Jesus doesn't identify Judas by name, but by whom he was destined to be, the son of destruction. It's the same title used for the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. See, Judas was lost by God's foreordination. It was part of God's plan of salvation that the Savior would be betrayed by one of his disciples, and that betrayal is part of the suffering of Christ on behalf of our sin. It was a part of his humiliation that the one whom earlier in the evening that Jesus washed the feet of would come and betray him with a kiss. It was part of what Christ suffered in our place. Jesus intercedes as a king seeking protection for his disciples, preserving them from the enemy. And how does he do it? Well, he does it through the, the means of giving his disciples his word. In verses 17 through 19, we see that the word of God is sufficient for making the disciples holy and the word of God equips them for service. The word of God is sufficient for making us holy. Verse 17, look back there with me. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God cleanses the disciples of the influence of the world. That's the image we're given in Ephesians chapter 5. It says that the bride of Christ is washed with the water of his word. That as the enemy comes against the disciples, in Ephesians 6, it says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit, their weapon against his lies and temptation. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and is able to divide where men cannot divide. It is the means by which the Holy Spirit will go into the disciples who've been taken out of the world and he finds remnants of the world in them and he, with the surgeon's care, cuts out and sanctifies them, makes them more like their master and savior. It is by the word of God that disciples are renewed in their thinking. Romans chapter 12 so that they are no longer conformed to thinking like the world, but they are transformed, renewed in the image of God, conformed to the image of Christ. 
You may well say, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And if I give an honest assessment of my life and sanctification, there seems to be a lack of transformation. Maybe the word is not working in my heart and mind. What place has the word of God been given in your life? What priority is it? It is another image of it is it's the bread of life. Do you treat it as the very sustenance of your soul that you desperately depend on? How many times do you unintentionally miss a physical meal but miss giving priority to sitting under the reading and studying of God's word? Now, I would, I would say that when it's given its proper place of honor in our hearts and our minds, the word of God, that it's not just true, it is the truth. When we come to it with diligence and preparation and prayerfulness, willing to submit to what it teaches, receiving all that it teaches by faith, storing it in our hearts and seeking to practice in our life, it sanctifies us. It's our high priest praying for us, but also he is our our prophet that through the ministry of the word, he is still convicting us of sin and showing us God's will. Working by his spirit. The word of God is sufficient for our holiness, but it's also sufficient to equip the disciples for service. Just as he says they'll be sanctified in the truth, your word is truth. He says in the following verse, in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. That's a remarkable statement. Think about what has been said in the prayer already. Jesus, in his life and ministry, in his words and works, he has revealed the mission of the Father and the Son. In verse 8, and they received them, and he've come to them to know the truth, that I have come from you, and they believe that you have sent me. He explains that the Father and the Son have a shared mission, a united mission. And now the disciples are called into that mission. And so that's where Jesus prays for them in verse 11, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is a prayer that they would be of one purpose and one mind. That they would recognize we are on the same team. Just as the Father and Son stand opposed to the wickedness and sinfulness and rebellion of the world, so now we have been taken out of the world. And as the Father and Son oppose what is evil and wrong, so we too now live contrary to the world. But as Jesus entered the world on mission to save those whom the Father have given him, now we enter into that mission. And they are to be of a common mind. The word of God sets them apart and equips them for the mission. 2 Timothy 3.16 expounds it this way. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There it is. Sanctification and service. Because we are sanctified for service. Jesus is praying, keep them from evil. Keep them growing in holiness. Keep them on mission with you and I, Heavenly Father. And your word, Heavenly Father, is sufficient for this. 
preserve them from abandoning what has been revealed to them about the persons of the Godhead and the mission of the triune God. Jesus is praying, keep them believing and keep them going out into the world with the word. And then we come to Jesus' prayer for the universal church. Verses 20 through 26. So this includes the immediate disciples and the church today. Jesus prays for the communion of the saints now and forever. Saints is a way of saying the sanctified ones. Those who've received the word, and because they've received the word, they've been set apart from the world. Jesus prays for the communion of the church, one with another, and the communion that believers have with the triune God. And the simplest definition of communion, common union is the sharing of life. And the first thing, when Jesus comes to this portion of his prayer, I want to call our attention to in verse 26, in verse 20, is that the Great Commission is unstoppable. It's an unstoppable mission. In verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's not, I want to pray for these disciples and those who might, but those who will. That here is this small band of nobodies that will be against all foes, both from Jews and Gentiles, both from neighbors and the government, both from all that would seek to squelch their witness and their movement. And Jesus says, no, it's going to, it's going to happen. What they're sent to do, what they're set apart to do, there will be those who through their word will be called out of the world. And in the darkest times of, of the apostles' ministry and for us as a life, as a church together, this is a great assurance for us that the Great Commission is an unstoppable mission and that there will be those who will believe called out of the world until Christ returns. And then we see that it is the church's presence in the world is part of the means by which the word of God goes forth, but it goes forth then, it's, it's exampled by the church in the world. In a way in which Jesus was uh, the exegete of the Father, then the church becomes the exegete of the gospel, not just in the words, but in their life together. We see that in verse 21. That they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, this isn't just oneness of mission. This is oneness of essence. That those who belong to Christ have the Spirit of Christ and now are part of the family of God. And that the way that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father that love has entered into their hearts and they love one another and they love God according to that love. When we live as the family of God, we display the love of God to the world. We don't become part of the Godhead, but we have real union with the Son. We're not deified, but we're united to the God-man. And that we will experience glory with him, being glorified with him. But even now, 
through our union with him, the church displays the love of God to the world. Word of great prayer request. That is what we're praying for when we pray that the church would be one. We're not concerned about denominational splits. There's something bigger and spiritual here. It's not organizational unity. It's may we live as the family that we are. Then in verse 24, Jesus opens his heart further before his disciples and for us. He shares his longing and desire. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This is the Savior's desire. Sinclair Ferguson points out that this request here is quite the opposite of a prayer Jesus will pray in a couple hours. That as he leaves the upper room and enters the Garden of Gethsemane, and the weight and the burden of the cross falls upon his shoulders. In his human nature, he says, not my will, but your will be done. But it was because of this prayer, this desire, that the God-man, the Son of God, desiring that his people would see his glory, the glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world, that he was willing to pray that prayer, not my will, but your will be done. And he was willing to bear the wrath of God for the sins of his people. His disciples who've been with him, they've seen his humiliation. They've seen him mistreated. They've seen him falsely accused. They'll see him go through a, a, a false trial declared guilty of no crimes that he has committed. They'll see him executed and mocked. And he's willing to do that because he says, I want them to see me exalted. That is my great desire. Well, there's more that, that could be said from this passage. I want to leave us with this with four uh, takeaways as we are coming to the Lord's table this morning. The first takeaway is that Knowing that Christ is interceding for us is a source of unending joy. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is speaking of all of the things he has said, but particularly of this prayer now saying, I'm praying aloud in the presence of my disciples to you, Heavenly Father, so that they can hear what I'm praying for them in order that their joy might be fulfilled. It's a source of unending joy. Jesus wants you to hear this prayer for you. Because there's going to be many things that would seek to rob you of your joy. And there will be many trials and many opportunities to deny the Savior. There will be many attacks from the enemy. But all that we endure, we know that we endure because we are being preserved by our Savior and we 
endure with joy, knowing that glory awaits us. The second thing is that if you are a Christian, this passage helps you understand your identity in Christ. Your identity is one who has been given to the Son by the Father. You've been given to the Son by the Father. You are a given one, given out of the world. And so therefore, do not go back and give yourself to the ways of this world again. When it comes and the tempter comes and you're facing sin, sin that you used to enjoy, sin that you used to desire, you say, no, I'm one who's been given to the Son. And in baptism, I've been given the name of the triune God placed upon me. One of the things that happens in baptism is that it is a naming ceremony. That's why we announce the the participant's name because that is one name, but then there's a greater name that comes to supersede that name, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Your identity, believer, is one who's been given to the Son. And so when Satan comes to tempt you in sin, you could say, like Martin Luther, saying that I'm a baptized one. The third thing I wanted to take away is that there is never any grounds for boasting in anything but Christ alone. Here we see that faith is a gift. Jesus manifests the name of the Father. He gives the disciples the word that they received. And then he keeps them by that word and asks the Father to keep them by their name. Faith is a gift. And then God's people are preserved by the intercession of Christ. We are kept ones, not by our keeping, but by his keeping. And that as we pursue sanctification, we are able to do so because it is the Father and the Son and the Spirit working in us. And there is no grounds for any boasting, anything related to our salvation. It is all for the glory of Christ. And lastly, the fourth takeaway is we want to step back and consider the glory that is almost in its totality, in in entirety, beyond our comprehension. The fourth thing is, as we listen to Jesus' high priestly intercession, we, we come into holy ground. There is mysterious things that we are invited to come and, and gaze upon. We get a glimpse of the, the covenant of redemption, the pactum salutis, that God, before the creation of the world, that God the Father chose a people for the Son, and the Son agreed to be the mediator of the people given to him by the Father. We see the heart of Christ for his Father and for his people. We see the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. We get a window into eternity. We get a glimpse of the splendor and majesty of God's perfections. And as we get that view, as we are invited to come and stand in this holy ground, we can't leave unchanged. Have you ever magnetized a needle? I, I have. 
recently as a science experiment with the kids. Um, magnetizing a needle, you take an ordinary needle that doesn't have magnetic draw, doesn't have magnetic force, and you take a magnet and you rub it in the same direction over and over and over again, at least a dozen times or more, and then you could take that needle and it's, it's magnetized, it has poles, and it works just like a magnet. Well, this glimpse of the glory of Christ is meant to magnetize the heart of the believer. Just as a compass always finds north, our hearts are to be fixed on the glory of Christ. John Owen put it this way, only a sight of the glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. The heart of believers are like magnetized needle which cannot rest until it is pointing north. So also a believer magnetized by the love of Christ will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory. Having tasted of the glory of Christ and seen glimpses of it, nothing else in this world will satisfy. He is your true north. And so ask yourself and be honest. Is the supreme devotion of your heart and mind and life seeking the glory of your Savior? Is the longing of your heart to one day see the exalted Lord and the glory that he had before the creation of the world? It is what theologians call the beatific vision. That, that, is, that is the height of our salvation. The day that we see the God-man, our Savior, face to face. When faith becomes sight. And until that day, our hearts are like a magnetized needle, always looking for the glory of Christ. Seek Him and His glory above all. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, we stand in awe of you that you have called us out of this world and having been called out of this world, we learn that we, we are among those that the Father has given to the Son. What a great comfort and assurance that we have before a holy God. That he has chosen sinners like us to be redeemed by the blood of the Son. So we come seeking real communion with our Savior, spiritual communion by faith this morning, being reminded of all the glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.